You found it. Japan Whoop Podcast. Blowing hot air to the back end of Tokyo. I'm your co-host, Matt Bigelow. Oh, and I'm Mike Rogers. The uh, No, I'm the co-host. You're the host. I insist on co-hosting. I'm a fair and equitable oh, okay. man. I, I understand. It, right. <laughs> okay, great. These days, you we got a special guest today. We have a special guest today. We do indeed. Very, very super famous. He's responsible for selling, what, 28 million records? Yeah, something like that. Mr. Lee Papa. Yeah, yeah. I'm the victim. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're a co-host too today. Now, well, if you want to be, it's all up to you. Okay. Uh, So, yeah, Lee, you have a very impressive record in history. I was, uh, Mike was kind enough to send me some of your background. Um, you look like you've you've been from the bottom to the top to the bottom to the top for thirty or forty years. Um, can you it's briefly? A coaster, uh, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Um, I noticed that you are on your, on your bio here. You got Queen, you got Good Charlotte, you got um, Ned's Atomic Dustbin, Engelbert Humperdinck. It'd be great to talk about that. But please, uh, at the beginning, just do a brief introduction. What do you do in the music industry, and uh, how'd you get these positions? Well, my name's Lee Popa. I come from Chicago. It's the home of rhythm and blues. So I used to hang out uh, with my bicycle when I was maybe 11 years old at Maxwell Street, where they actually filmed the Blues Brothers movie. The the restaurant that uh, Aretha Franklin sings in, I've had breakfast at a few hundred times. My lovely co-producer, Joe Lee, and I used to, when we had no money, our first dates were at Maxwell Street buying French fries at, at the Maxwell Street stand. So... I come from that part of Chicago, and uh, my cousin was a bass player in a band called The Shadows of Night, and they had a hit song called Gloria. I think I was oh. old or so. Yep. Is that the one that was covered by Patti Smith? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. It's a Van Morrison song, and uh, the great Jimmy Sons, uh, lead singer, he was just inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. So it started easy. I had a car. Most people didn't. I borrowed my mom's car. I put a couple of amplifiers in the back of the back seat, actually tore the back seat, trying to get one in there. And, and, uh, because I didn't really have a lot of money and I loved music. Music was just, it was just took me to another place. So I figured the easiest way to go see music for free was to work with the band. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Free. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, they feel better. This- <laughs> Throughout this cast, I'm gonna give a give a advice to musicians that might be listening. So I think the first thing that you should learn is Tetris, the game, because packing that truck is the most important thing that your things don't get broke. <laughs> oh, so I would be I had been living in the inner city. It got really rough. Uh, I was going to school uh, in Chicago, and then my parents bought a house and moved out to the suburbs. Well, the one kid that I knew from the city, he said, come on over. You got to see my friend's band. And I went down in the basement and the band was playing and they turned out to be Survivor and wrote the song, Eye of the Tiger. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a classic. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, Jim Peterick, the, the guy, one of the guys in the band and Frankie Sullivan, the guys who wrote those songs were the nicest guys to me, you know, so. I stood around standing next to the sound man all the time, watching what he was doing. And it wasn't as complex as it, as it is now. And one day uh, we were at uh, the pit and ping, which is at, at an air force base. 
And it's actually the Air Force Base. Wait, wait, wait. This is really good. It's actually the Air Force Base that's parodied in Spinal Tap. So he got pulled over by the Air Force police and didn't have an identification card in him. So they held him up. Because you, well, you need had, ID when you're on bases, right? Right. And uh, he, the band had to go on. So they said, you're the guy. And I was like, oh, my God. Well, I didn't know that you just kind of leave those knobs that way, but I knew all the lyrics. So I turned it all the way to 10 and then turn it off in between the lyrics. So it was just blasting. The band turned up really loud and, and things like that. And I just turned 16. I just got out of my driver's permit. So that led to, okay, you're the sound guy now. Well, in, in Chicago bars, you have to be 18 to drink. So the club owners would let me come in. And then when the band would be playing, I'd, I'd sit in the back room until the band would go on. I'd do sound and do that. I, I have to say my first drink was at 29 years old because I was just afraid to have the smell of beer or booze or any of that stuff or wreck my chances of working with this music that was really uh, my salvation, right? Wow. Yeah. Did you see a lot of people ruin themselves at that time with alcohol? And that's why well, drugs, drugs and alcohol have always been rampant in the, in the music industry. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, it, it, uh, if you watch an interview with Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, mm. you can see that. Hold on a second. I've got to, we're going to take a quick shooting up break. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but it's not that it's, you know, out of uh, low self-esteem, it's about a pressure of being there. You know, Aerosmith, uh, Aerosmith wouldn't be jacked up like they got jacked up if they didn't have the pressure of what's the next hit? Where's your song? Let's go, let's go, let's go. This constant push, you know? So, okay, so I stayed sober for that. When I had my first drink, it was Dom Perignon Champagne at the Penthouse in the uh, Ambassador East Hotel where I used to be an employee. We rented the, the Penthouse because I signed a record deal with Epic Records. Oh. Yeah. And so what was this a, were you a sound engineer signing a deal or were you a musician uh, and band signing a deal? Okay. I, I became a musician in the band and it was all out of a fluke because I was working at a club called the West End. So the doorman who was my friend that, that I got the job for and myself and my next door neighbor, who was a saxophone player, we, we were always hanging out at the club. Well, it's really cold in Chicago. So when the roads would get icy, it'd be like 20 minutes to go before the band's supposed to be there. And then they call and say, we're not going to play tonight. So uh, that's how I paid my rent. So I made a deal with the club owner one day. I said it was a Tuesday night. Her name is Sue Miller. And Sue's now married to Jeff Tweedy. So uh, Sue said, okay, I'll let you guys play. So we went up and did a free form set. Well, the girl. Jazz Odyssey. What's that? Jazz Odyssey? Well, no, I just, I made lyrics up. Yeah, Jazz Odyssey. Made lyrics up as we went along. Sang songs like uh, Pick Your Nose in Public and uh, 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 You're Like a Wet Paper Towel and, and, and things like that. You know, just, just, just going, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the girl who wrote for the uh, Chicago Radio newspaper was there, and she thought we were the next coolest thing. So she put an article in the next cool band are the slamming Watusis. And all of a sudden now we're a band. So my really good friend, Mark Durani, who's uh, 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 plays in KMFDM and ministry and all that stuff, virtuoso Ingve Malmsteen guitar player was like, Hey, you got a record deal going? I said, no, no, 
He goes, that's what it said in the newspaper. So I'm joining your band. Mm. And that, that started our whole, our, our whole journey. It's so <laughs> different amazing. from Japan. It, it sounds like it's just a chaotic mess that turned out really well. You know, in Japan, people are so organized about this type of thing. That oh, type of shit never happens. Here, tip number one. Tip number one in the music industry. Early is on time. On time is late. Bootsy Collins got into James Brown's band because the bass player in James Brown's band went to go get liquor from the liquor store. Bootsy was sitting on the couch because he wanted to listen to James Brown as he did his track. And that's how it James came out and said, hey, is there a bass player here? Bootsy said, yeah, I'm a bass player. And that's how Bootsy Collins started his, his career. Wow. Yeah. What brings you to Japan, Lee? I know it's a standard question that we all have to ask. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, you, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you like the culture, you like all this stuff. What I like is the musicians. Yeah, I love sushi. I love the temples. I love to feel calm. I love to know that nobody's packing a gun because I grew up in a rough neighborhood in Chicago. And, you know, the first time I was in Japan and somebody was jogging behind me and ran up there, I turned around like a kung fu move and the guy freaked out because I didn't, <laughs> you know, I thought he was going to jump on me or something, you know. So it's a really great, calm feeling. You know, I, I enjoy that. And, I, and through the many years that I've been coming here, I, I've, I have a lot of friends now. But um, what I'm really into is empowering the women and empowering the kids and all of these people who say, I'm not good enough. I have the skills to take people to their next level and let them live their dream. Because if you, you can get through this uh, point where you've made the CD or the music or the song that makes you happy, you can quit. Because you finally have done what you have started out to achieve. And that's what I like to do. It's nice to work with Sony. You know, like Mike said, I, 29 million records. When I do the White Zombie record with those guys, they wanted to kill me. I did it for $500 cash. Because the one guy in the band, not Rob, but the other guitar player was from Chicago and I wanted to help him out. It would, turned into David Geffen's largest selling 12-inch single ever. How did you so, help them out? I uh, got Sasha from KMFDM. We gave White Zombie the sound you hear now. We added all that electronics and keyboards and things like that. I got some great players. I did it with Paul Raven from Killing Joke in the room too. You know, so we uh, we did that. So going back to why I come to Japan is I think Japan has some of the greatest musicians currently. Undoubtedly. The discipline well, uh, is crazy. Well, you know, Lunacy, Glay, um, I met Hide in A&M Studios in, in Los Angeles because my friend Ray was uh, Ray McVeigh from the band The Professionals was producing them. So they were in the small little room in A&M, and I was working with uh, uh, the Deftones in the front room. And I didn't realize that they had rented the whole complex. So they're in the little back room, which is like a small mixer and a little tape machine. And they're listening to music, smoking cigarettes, you know, and I came in there and I, I heard their uh, Hide's music. And I was like, I put my arm around them. Man, this is really great. You have got to stick to this, man. This is a sign. <laughs> so he leaves the room and my friend Ray goes, pulling on the cigarette. You realize he played 24 nights in the Tokyo Dome, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he was emboldened by yeah. your encouragement. <laughs> well, you know, uh, when, you know, 
uh, it's unfortunate, you know, he passed away right after that. But uh, I had a I had a special thing with him because I'm not uh, a guy trying to get into your money or your pockets. You you mixed his uh, he days Tokyo Dome shows. I heard. No, no, I I I he. He, uh, I worked on that record uh, called Zilch, which is oh. uh, his last record. Yeah. Oh. And, and, and what they call me in the music industry is the cleaner. I'm not going to tell him. Are you going to tell him? Get Lee. Lee will tell him. And then they fly me in to tell the band. Good Charlotte didn't play on their first record. They just sung on it. So when they were trying to put their show together for their first tour, when they were, what, 19 years old? They didn't realize that was Will Lee and guys from the Saturday Night Live band that had played all the tracks on their record because the record company wanted them to be a hit. Oh. Right? So they were really bummed out about that. And I said, no, you don't understand. The record company is going to put so much push into you. The second advice I gave to them is they were all telling me, Oh man, when my my check comes from the record company, I'm gonna get me a 54 inch screen. I'm gonna get myself a, a a Corvette, all this stuff. I said, no, you're not. You guys are gonna be on the road for a year and a half. Buy a condominium, rent your condominium out, and get a financial advisor. So Benji and Joel, uh, Joel's married to uh, uh, Benji's married to Cameron Diaz now. And Joel's uh, wife is uh, uh, da, 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 um, Jennifer Aniston. No, no, Nicole. Nicole. Uh, what's Kidman. his name? The keyboard player. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'll remember. All but right, anyway, yeah, so yeah. that's the kind of advice and things I do for the bands. So Epic and all these other labels would call me out and say, "Hey, help fix the band. Do do what's going on." You know, awesome. Can can I can I ask you a question? You you said that girl, Good Charlotte did not play on their first record. I have heard rumors that Aerosmith did not play on their first record. Do you know anything about? That? Yeah, that's that's true. That's uh, 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 the guitar player uh, from Alice Cooper's band playing the solo in Walk This Way. And that's why uh, he never plays the solo in Walk This Way like that. Yeah. So what's the reasoning yeah. behind that? It, uh, because you, as a producer, you have a responsibility to protect the band. And, and it's out of protecting the band. And that was Jack Douglas, the producer who also produced the first Cheap Trick record. Cheap Trick played all the tracks on their record. They had already played 700 gigs. In fact, Cheap Trick played 300 gigs one year, and the Slam and Watusis made sure that we played 312, so we played more gigs than Cheap Trick. <laughs> and, for, and for me to go on to be their sound engineer and then record countless songs with them for demos and things like that, that was really great. They're, they're a band that plays one take. Oh, cool. So can I say something, Matt? Yeah, of course. There's two things I want to know. Wanted to talk to you about was um, you had mentioned to me about um, uh, Aretha Franklin when you met Aretha Franklin and she told you to I don't know go get a flyer or a ticket or something like that. And also, um, well, okay, well, also like, you have any advice for foreign bands? This show is in English, so a lot of foreigners listen to it. Like foreign bands in Japan. Do's and don'ts. So like those, just those two things. Okay. Well, Aretha Franklin, uh, you know, uh, man, do I love that music. 
I knew every move in that music. The guitar comes in at bar 16. Here comes the shaker at bar 22. I got the faders. I'm moving everything just right on top of it. So I, show ends. Uh, her, her assistant comes up to me and goes, Aretha wants to see you backstage. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get the <laughs> job with Aretha Franklin. This is cool, man. Oh, my God. My heart's pounding. Me. <laughs> yeah. so, so I get into the dressing room. And she goes, Mr. Soundman, can you go get me a ticket? So I go out to the box office and I get a ticket. And I'm thinking, oh, she's going to keep it for a collection. How cool. Or maybe she's going to autograph it and give it to me. You know? I, I I couldn't get my head through the door because my head is so blown up at this moment, right? <laughs> so I come in and she goes, sit down. I said, sure. And I'm like, oh, this is it. She's going to ask me for the job. She goes, read me that ticket. I said, uh, at 8.30 and 10.30 tonight, Aretha Franklin. And then she says, that's right. It don't say Aretha Franklin's drummer, guitar player, keyboard player. It says Aretha Franklin. So you should be paying attention to Aretha Franklin because that's who's on the ticket. And she's standing between me and the doorway. And I can see she's getting colored, man. She's got it going. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, and she's going to take a swing at me. She's going to take a swing at me. <laughs> right? And so style. I just, yeah. They, they, you know, they all been through it. I'm just another, another, another guy standing in the way of that. So second show starts. I walk up to the soundboard. The band plays a little intro music. Everything sounds great. She walks up to the microphone and said, Mr. Soundman. And I look right at her. She goes, come on down. I got a seat for you right here. And I sat down in front of the, the show, right down in front, the sound system on each side of me, and it sounded great. And my takeaway from all that stuff was, first of all, the artist that's on that ticket is the one that gets the extra couple of numbers up on that fader. Second of all, you don't have to do something all the time. Sometimes leaving it alone is your best bet. And oh. it was really amazing to me that I really got humbled by it. And all my friends took me through it and gave it to me for months about, hey, Aretha called. She wants to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> it is true. But I learned though. that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so if we could. So if we could move forward, I got the job to work with Engelbert Humperdinck. I was going to ask probably about Engelbert, of, yeah. Probably one of the greatest musicians I've ever been around. What made and, Engelbert and special? Go, what? What? Yeah, because he can take a band that plays his music and then direct them into playing it like Engelbert would play it. He made, oh. at, at that point, he had made 74 records. And I, I asked him, I said, so you, what, what music are you listening to? He goes, I never listen to music. I make music. Wow. Yeah. That was heavy. So one day he came in from soundcheck and I was playing Pink Floyd on the PA and he sat down and listened. He goes, who's this group? I go, this is <laughs> Pink Floyd. He goes, where are they from? <laughs> then you see on my, Not then you see Floyd. on my, wait, 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 here, here's a heavy one. Yeah. Okay. He sees on my resume. He sees, now he's finally read my resume and he's like, Lee, are you Christian? I go, why do you ask that? He goes, this ministry thing. What's that? Oh, God. <laughs> I go, it's a band. He goes, come to my room and play it for me. So I played him to live in case you feel like throwing up uh, thing, which is just insanity. They got the fence in front of the band. People are diving off the fence, all that stuff. And he just looks at me and he goes, and why do you work for me? 
and I picked up the guitar and I played a song that he has on his first record that I've been playing for years. And it's an obscure bluesy song. And he just looked at me and it just shocked him, right? The next day, he had a bad show. We were in Las Vegas. And he's like, I want everybody out of backstage and go get Lee. And so I come back there and he's like, what happened today? And I said, how much golf did you play? He's like, what? I said, how much golf did you play? Out in the sun all day? What happened? You're 74 years old, man. You got to take care of yourself. You can't play three rounds of golf and then come to the show and then wonder why the encore is suffering. He said, will you tell me anything that anything else that's going on? I go, yeah, the bass player's talking shit behind your back every single day. He's making oh. the band up tight. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, sorry, dude, you're cut. So next day, <laughs> so the next day I come to come into sound check because we sound check every day, and there's the new bass player, and everybody's like, "What happened?" <laughs> and the band all said to him, "Oh, thank you," because he's talking to all of us about you, and we were afraid to tell you and everything. So, what was the name of that? Do you know the name of that Engelbert Humperdinck song you're talking about? The one that you play uh, for? Uh, uh. 10,000 miles to my home. I think that's the name of it. Yeah. And I think my mom name. used to really love Engelbert Humperdinck and she used to watch his TV show all the time. Yeah. And since we only had one TV, the, the kids, we had to dude, watch it too. You know, he, he was, first <laughs> of all, he was really good friends with Dean Martin and, and Elvis Presley. So he would just, when I, I would always sit with him before the show then and just hang around him because he was just cool, man. He brings cool to another level, you know. In Elvis's comeback special, if you watch, what what he what he says is, uh, the one guy comes in, he goes, "Hey man, to Elvis, you look like Engelbert Humperdinck because he's got the side chops going and 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 the bell bottom suits." He goes, "And that's a good thing." Oh. So, so Engelbert used to always tell 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 me stories, and he goes, "You know what? He, you know what Elvis told me one time." And Engelbert, I go, no, what? What'd he tell you? You know, like, I'm excited. He goes, and he's got his legs standing together because that's how Engelbert sings. He goes, Engelbert, open your legs up a little bit and let it breathe. Let them breathe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, so, yeah, Mike, go ahead. You, um, I'd, I'd just love to, to just ramble about all this. Yeah, let's go, on to, let's go on to helping the musicians here. Okay, and, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. Okay. Here's some myths in, myths in the music industry. Mm -hmm. If you're writing a record and you want to have 12 songs on it, you'd better come with 35 minimum. That's what the big boys do. Oh. You don't pick your songs, your fans do. Quit playing the songs that you like and play the songs that your fans like. That's the winning record. Oasis came to Japan before they ever played in England because they knew they wouldn't be booed or put into a pigeonhole. They would be accepted by the Japanese and they could see what worked and what didn't. And that's what made their career. When you, as a producer, input gets you the output. So quit buying off-brand equipment. There's a Fender Stratocaster, there's a Gibson Les Paul. That's how it works. A Fender amplifier, a Hammond B3, a Rhodes piano. Even if it's in software, use these traditional tones to make your records. 
so my Sears to, guitar is not Sears Roebuck and Company guitar. That's not good. Oh, that's that's a Dan Electro. So Jimmy Page plays one of those. So that only passes <laughs> for a song or two. Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> no, it's good. No, it's good. But there are exceptions to these rules. But that's what I see a lot. Don't spend your money on buying a guitar pedal. Buy some clothes, would you please? And and all of these, I don't want to say American bands, but yeah, okay, I will. All the American kids that I see playing in bands here look sloppy and are trying to look like uh, Pearl Jam back in the day with flannel shirts and all that stuff. That's here you mean, not cool. You mean in Japan? Yeah. Oh. Don't, don't be sloppy. Have your stage clothes. Yes, it may be a club plug with only 100 people coming. But act the part, please. Quit drinking at band practice. Band practice is rehearsing your instrument with the band, not just having a party, right? So practice is what you do at home. Going through the set is what you do at rehearsal. Be prepared for that. Mm. Know how to talk to the audience. Write down what you want to say. Don't ad-lib it. And, and you can embellish upon it. But these are the things that slam, the, slam the, the gig to a halt. Soundcheck. Why are you playing your whole set at soundcheck? Because no matter what you think is going to happen, you, it's not. This is a whole different thing. As soon as the people come in, the whole system changes and you have to have trust in your sound engineer. Quit touching your equipment. If you can't hear it, ignore it. Because when you touch that stuff, now you're sending the sound man into a scramble and you're knocking him out of the game because he's supposed to psychically know what your band's going to do next. And that's what a lot of this great... I think Japan has some of the greatest sound engineers here, some of the greatest mastering places, and without a doubt, the best studios in all the world. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have a residency at End Hits Studio here. It's meticulously taken care of. The engineer is fantastic. I can't tell them what to do to help me because they've already done it so fast. They're you good know? at that here. It allows the, yeah, that allows... Uh, uh, what you're doing to have, you know, there's left brain and right brain. One side is use the screwdriver. The other guy is, is the other side is envision the screwdriver flying through the air with a cord, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So you got, you got to have that vision, but I see all these guys walking around having a couple of beers before the set alcohol slows down your hearing. There's a little nerve in the back of your ear and it slows it down. So you, you're now hearing a, a sluggish deal, right? Tune up. It's a tuner. If you're going to buy a guitar pedal, buy a tuner. You know, I hear so many bands playing in this like semi-tuned thing. Take care of your instruments. And this, this so, comes from me seeing 60 or 70 bands, not just so, I'm just saying stuff because this is what I do. This is in Japan? So, Lee. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Mike. So, uh, uh, so Lee, um, so when you say about the bands, like don't have a beer like before your set, are you? What should they be doing? Practicing. I mean, the the the, the place is full. There's a lot of people there. Yeah, They're in the back in, room. What should they be sit, doing? Go sit in the dressing room and play the scales. Warm up on the guitar. Get your drummer with his practice pad. Living Color, the great group Living Color, because we had so much equipment and such a large PA. 
we've got a second set of equipment. So when that band ended their set, they would go into the dressing room and play the set again. This is insane, right? Mm -hmm. They had a small practice drum kit and small guitar amps and a small vocal PA in the dressing room. It would be the last thing to go on the truck. And if we played an hour and a half set, it always took us two and a half hours to get out of the place. So they'd have a little food and they play the exactly through the same set again. And that's how they became. uh, When I mixed their sound that Ross killed it, there was 360,000 people there. Wow. Yeah. That's that. That's what led led to it. John Coltrane used to go into the dressing room and play through the songs himself and be ready to go out and play the songs. But he was a junkie for a long time. Heroin has got nothing to do with that. Uh, jazz guys and heroin, it, it allows them to improvise. And they and it, there's a mystique about it. Is, so they were is it different than in. booze? Because, you know. No, no, no. no. I, I'm just saying, do I recommend it? Absolutely not. I'm the guy that worked with Al Jorgensen of ministry. And he probably spent three and a half million dollars on drugs and five million on rehab. But wow. Yes, he was on heroin. That's because Charlie Parker had been on heroin. And Charlie Parker was the one guy out of all of them that they all looked up to. So they thought, well, I got to do heroin because he did. Or else they'll give me the hi hat. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. But he, regardless, jacked up or not, he would be practicing all the time. You know? And that's the thing. So, So, ultimately, basically, what you're saying is... If I'm in a band, I'm whatever, guitarist, bass player, whatever, in a band, we're playing a show at Shubia, and the show starts at um, 7.30, the doors open at 7 o'clock. From 7 o'clock, or from 6.30, whatever, we should be in the back room practicing. We shouldn't be out milling around with the crowd, drinking beer. Here's the issue. When you see Robert Plant in those videos, and he's got the bottle of Jack Daniels, that's tea. I've done that. That's tea. <laughs> he has tea in that bottle, and that's a fact. Okay? It's a prop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when 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 Metallica was going around being the drink a shot of Jaeger with Metallica, they were drinking flat Coca-Cola out of their Jaeger bottles while all the kids were drinking Jaegermeister. Why did this happen? So how, who, who proposes these ludicrous um, ideas? Is it like a licensing agreement with Jagermeister to make some money? I mean, because you're saying these bands aren't playing on their records, uh, and then they're, they're not really drinking. There's this mystique to it. But, what, you know, what's, who, how does this come about? When, there's some songs that Sting can't play, so his roadie, Mike Quattrochi, plays bass, and he stands right on the stage, and you can watch him play in the bass. And you go, wow, Sting's great. It's not proposed. It's like, uh, all right, I'm going to throw him under the bus. U2 has a complete band underneath the stage. <laughs> I am not surprised what? that they are a because bunch of Because when something fucks. isn't correct <laughs> and you have a high dollar ticket like that, that's it. That's it. You cannot, you can't, you can't let the fans down. You can't let that go. And there's a uh, lot, 99% of it, that band never gets into the PA. But they're there in case. Right? Wow. Yeah. So it's just about the fans. It's about making the fans happy, 
putting on a show, making that ticket price worth it. The fans go away. The reason I stay sober and I, I can tell you and everybody can tell you, I've never had a drink before I've done a show. I, I, I've never had a drink before the studio. I've ne- never had a drink in the studio until the session was done. Mm. Then I'd have, have a beer and grab the last train if I'm here in Japan or I go home and have a beer. However you want to look at that. Because I have a responsibility to the working man and the working woman. The secretary that works in the office that, that takes her measly money to buy the Bon Jovi ticket and it takes them weeks to have that money and they sacrifice that all to be screwed up by a couple of people in the crew? No, thank you. No, thank you. That's my reward. My reward is when those people cheer because I know I'm involved in that. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. Do we still have time, Matt? I've got time if you guys got time. Okay, wait. So, Lee, so what are you doing in in Japan now? I mean, not why you came, but what are you doing now? What's your plans? Well, I'm starting the basis of a Colorado-based label called Color Red. Eddie Roberts and uh, Zach Bloom and and Nick Houchins and a couple of other people, uh, Leah and uh, Carly, all these guys have uh, latched on to the Denver jam scene. Eddie's from uh, England or Wales, actually, and and, uh, stumbled across all of these great musicians that are there currently. So I want those musicians to interpolate and get together with Japanese musicians. One of my first signings is going to be the great producer Hoppy, uh, you know, and and re-release his record. I want Japan and America to come together so that uh, we can uh, reinforce those scenes. Uh, Color Red is is a very well curated uh, label from the record covers to the music that's played there, funk, soul, jazz, some uh, uh, Afrobeat. And some electronic, all of these things, but all the artists are really outstanding. So when you so, say jazz, you don't mean like take the A train. New jazz, and you new jazz. Mm. Yeah, not not take the A train, not 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 grandpa's music. I have to say here, I have to say here, though, Matt. I don't know if you know this. Color Red has a radio show. And the Color Red folks and Lee have been so kind to sponsor that show for me. It's a so great show. I hope you can I've check been it listening out. Listening to it, the, I I love the this um, new radio program, uh, Color Red Radio. I like the horns. I like the funk. I like the beats. I like the mixing that's going on in there. It's it's so refreshing, and I've been uh, listening to it for the past few weeks. Um, can't recommend it highly enough. And it's it's awesome music that you can't hear. It's almost like a Quentin Tarantino soundtrack in many ways. Where it, in many it's, ways. it's yeah. so familiar, but you've never really heard it before. Um, and then yeah. you, there's it, one it, thing that you might recognize, and it's followed up by a couple of other things you wouldn't, but you still really enjoy. It's it's fantastic. It's a fantastic product. I, I like to think of it as it's a color you recognize with a different shade to it. Yeah. Because uh, the color red that we use for the logo isn't the color red that Mike and I call the color red. It's a different shade. Different right? shade of red. So, right. And what's old is new. And when I grew up, it was two mics on the microphone uh, on the drums, not fifteen. Yeah, I can do both. So uh, you know, in the future here, I plan on uh, having a studio here and and moving forward to help the Japanese bands and get this crossover uh, to happen. There's a band here called uh, Scooby Doo, 
they took uh, Eddie and the new master sounds on their first tour. And I went and saw them here, man, they, they have the color red sound. We signed mm. a band called the draw bars uh, from Germany. They have the color red sound. You know, this goes back to that thing I was talking about, traditional instruments, B3, Fender Rhodes, Les Paul, Gibson 335, the things that, that made records so your ear is familiar with it, just changed the notes up. Yeah. Um, so there's this, thinking about um, trends in music, um, we're, we're very digital these days, and it it opens up the, the market and the field to almost anything. Um, but I'm also thinking that there's so much and it's so wide and so random with a, like a YouTube or whatever, that more niche markets with specific walls are going to be built in the future. Uh, have you thought about well, this, that and, and how to, yeah, how you know, to, uh, Mike and I, yeah, Mike and I have long, Mike is, I can truly call Mike one of my best friends. This is a great thing because we kind of have a symbiotic relationship. We love the punk rock. We love the underdog. We love music that doesn't take money to make it, but has excitement in it. So we both believe, along with Haji Taniguchi, who was an ex-AVEX executive, and the other people that I have involved, our distributor, uh, Tamio and uh, Alliance, we all know because they're taking the CD player out of the cars that we're going to get there soon. Japan's not ready for that. I'm here to sell the physical and tower records and HMB until we get ready for that. But Mike and I both believe the future of the world is on the internet. When we go to 5G, then we're going to have fidelity again. Yes. So that's going to be amazing within itself. But, uh, you know, it's not what I did in the past. It's what I see as the future. So I'm always looking for the newest invention or the newest thing that can help me get the oldest thing. I just mixed a track now because I have a plugin that is the capital reverb chambers that they used in the 50s. So now I can re recreate that 50s sound using modern bands. So yeah. <laughs> in digital right now, uh, Japan hasn't quite accepted that. You know, and Color Red ourselves, we, we, have, uh, we started an album club where Eddie's curated a box of albums and tells his story through the groups that are in these albums. And we're talking vinyl because that's analog. It, it, it's, it's not disturbing. And I try to, when I do my music here, uh, we try to bounce everything to tape. And the last thing is high resolution digital before we dummy it down to the MP3. And that's why Mike's show sonically sounds the way it does. Yeah, it's very big high -end sound. technology. Yeah, it's fat. It's fat and thick. You know, so there's a lot of trends that are happening. And, uh, you know, it's great for the idol groups that are here because kids like that. It's great for, uh, uh, you know, uh, vocaloid groups. I think that's super cool. Not not a problem. I remember working with Run DMC when nobody would come see the band and everybody told me this is a fad. Well. It's not. It's the American market now. Yeah. But that's why I'm here in Japan, too. This is I can go to Sony Studios here and record to a tape machine. And I got to. Can I yeah. say something? Yeah. I am very happy that you guys compliment Color Red Radio. But I have to tell you that fat sound, how that happened. Lee um, told me to come to his studio and I've been there once. And. 
in 10 minutes, he showed me how to um, compress and uh, just to balance how to balance the show out. In 10 minutes, he showed me more than I learned working at a radio station in 30 years. That's a good ROI. And I do that now every time, every time, it's just like I can't believe this. Well, that, I can't this is that job. Sec- so See, I'm I'm here to share. I'm here to give. I'm not here to to hide it. You want to know how to get a good bass drum sound? An RE20 in the bass drum sound. Get a Pultec EQ and use an 1176 compressor on that. Want a good snare drum sound? Put a SM57 on the top. You totally lost me, but yeah, I believe you. <laughs> I have those microphones. I oh, have, really? I have a lot of micro. I got like 20 or 30 mics. Some of them are pretty good. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And and for me, uh, the the library never beat me up. Only my friends did. Yeah. So the, the knowledge is right there. The knowledge is there, right? So I'm always reading and reading, and I really love that all of these older producers are sharing their stuff. You guys might know that I had a liver transplant 10 years ago. July 2nd will be my 10-year anniversary. And all of these famous producers reached out to me who I never knew before, who had heard of my story. Eddie Kramer, Jimi Hendrix's producer, is like my friend now. Awesome. I have to go in the bathroom sometimes and cry because it's so amazing to me that I could be in this place. And he says, you know what you should do? And I take a note. Carol Kay, the world-famous bass player. She yells at me all the time. Yells at me. What are you thinking? Is she in the wrecking crew? Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Because she reached out to me. Yeah. And so it's like really great. I go, hey, Carol, what do you think of this track? Quit quantizing those beats. Let the musicians play. (laughs) Right. So, and I I discovered Eddie Roberts, you know, uh, not myself personally, but finding his music, I was blown away when I listened to the label. And then Zach Bloom, the CEO of our company, ran the product management for TuneCore so his, of America. So his internet experience is building what you see at TuneCore, except what he didn't like about TuneCore is they hadn't, hadn't, there was no filter. You could put out poetry, you could put out bad music. It was a, a place. Well, uh, Mike Tallman, our artist who does all our record covers, Mostly, as you can see, there's a continuity to that. So I'm not trying to reinvent the sound that Color Red has. I'm imitating that sound for that. Yes, I can make any kind of music, and I, and I have throughout my career, from working with Brian Eno and Harold Budd at the Plateau Zamir ambient music, to The Damned, who, who taught me how to climb out of hotel room. Well, the what? The Damned? Wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. I love The Damned. <laughs> the damned you need the a damn story need, need, yes. what? they threw me off the third floor balcony into a swimming pool <laughs> and i got out and the rat scabies the drummer said i'm probably gonna you're probably gonna quit now right i said i'm not gonna quit if you want to pick on me like my dad did go right ahead but i love your band and i'm always gonna be here <laughs> so me wow. and david rat have been friends forever <laughs> i call killing joke my good friends Wow. Yeah. Um, Those are my friends. So I, I'm really curious about um, 
internet business models moving into 5G, how do you see yourself competing with other established brands like Spotify and all of that? Hmm. Well, Spotify is a great thing. Everything's a great thing. Anything that promotes music is a great thing. And then I think it's going to be splintered off. What, how I'd like to see my business model for Color Red of Japan is I'd like to be the new Atlantic Records. Oh. Ahmed Erdogan is, is a hero, right? Okay. Why? Because he could have Ella Fitzgerald on the label and then move into Led Zeppelin. Right. Because it wasn't it's not about the genre. It's about the music. And that's what I feel about Japan. The visual stuff, those bands, Lunacy. Awesome. Fantastic. The Gazetta. Love those guys. Right. So all these things have their their place and their fandom. So in. in Yes, it's not going to be this massive financial reward that used to happen when eight people dominated that. But I think you. As not, I can't call it consumer, but as the as the fan of music, you can find the label that you like, and that's that's a key here, right? Finding the music that you like. We have seventeen thousand real fans of Color Red. Nobody unsubscribes from our www.colorred.com site because we send you free music. We don't ask you to buy it. We want you to enjoy it. You'll buy it because you enjoy it not because we're asking you to buy it. Well, you guys are giving out, giving out um, a free song once a week. Aren't you? Uh, two, right now, two, two songs a week. Uh, we're always mixing music. Eddie and Zach are releasing stuff on the internet all the time. You know, so there's a lot of music that we put out there and a lot of fans of those music. From, from can I, can I get the two free songs too? Yeah. I think, I think it's well, in your spam, most likely. Um, <laughs> always ask for favors yeah. when you're being recorded. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I like when a record company sends me stuff that I can listen to. Yeah, it's a good business model. I know some podcasts that do that as well. They include a newsletter uh, to remind you that the show is continuing with some mini essay or something like that that you can read. Well, it's, you know, I discovered you, you know... Uh, I have to say thank you for having me on this show because I had already discovered you. I had I'd already been following Walt, is how I say it. Walt, right? <laughs> Walt. Japan Walt, Walt podcast. Right. right, right. I can't believe it, mate. Walt. What yeah, is this? So why? Because I have to research everything about Japan. Yeah. I haven't been listening to what I would call American music for quite a long time because I enjoy... Here's two things I really have in my toolkit. Michael, tell you, why do you, Lee, why don't you learn Japanese? I don't learn Japanese because then the two Japanese musician guys behind me can be screaming at each other in a Japanese way, and it doesn't affect what I'm doing in the room, which is making their music better. Now, the American guys go, hey, man, you should do this here, do that there. And then I turn around and go, no, what you guys should actually be do- doing. Mm-hmm. So then that turns into a hands-on production instead of documentation. Right. Mike, Mike hates it that I told him the Sex Pistols didn't play so much on their record. Makes him nuts. Right. Another okay. band. That's Chris Spedding on guitar, adding to it. Mm. But you still got to have John Lydon or the Johnny Rotten up front. And that guy is so full of crap. I mean, I got to tell you, being around <laughs> him, I got to wear chess waders. Whoa. Wait. <laughs> Wait. Yeah, I'll call so him out. Is John Lydon. 
Is John Lydon auto-tuned? Uh, not so much because he's he. Everything else is so in tune that he can be out of tune. He's like oh. a he's like a broken saxophone or something. He's that dissonant. <laughs> is is you Johnny know? Rotten auto-tuned? Uh, I don't know. Was he on tape for that tour? Did anybody notice? <laughs> but I can tell you that my friend Martin, uh, you know, I was in the band Pigface as the singing sound man. <laughs> I would, I was mixing and then I get up and do a couple of tracks with them. So I would sing with Ogre from Skinny Puppy, you know, oh. and, cause he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, Kevin is a super nice guy and I love him very much. And we, uh, psychically connect on the stage it's really the, the the vibe so martin was the drummer in pil and when martin was in pil that band was unstoppable and then for whatever reason uh you know i think john has a a self-destruct me- mechanism yeah that he wants yeah. to wreck it you know he has to be yeah. an asshole around everybody he it's I can confirm that. that (laughs) I feel that way about myself sometimes too. Yeah. (laughs) If you're actually happy about something, then you should be wondering when it's going to (laughs) end. Right. So by continuing your kind of internal misery mechanisms, it feels like, ah, this will, this is fine. It's not going to end. I'm miserable. It's music, self musician, self-destruction. Yeah. Wow. That's what leads you back to the drugs and the, and the drugs and the drinking and all that stuff. Yeah. I've had a few beers on I can't believe I have all this stuff. You know, um, yeah, Lee, I have, I was wondering, um, about a couple of things before finishing the interview here. Um, maybe a follow-up question, but recently John Prine, um, you know, uh, shuffled his mortal coil. He's no longer with us. And I noticed on your bio, you worked with him. I swept the studio when he made the record. That's right. It was my first job in the studio. I got paid $1 an hour. And with that money at the end of the night, this is a I John Prine song. Go, <laughs> listen, I could go buy, I could go buy a, a stack of White Castle hamburgers and eat for the day. And I watched everything. I talk a lot now, but when I was in the studio with those guys, I was I shut up. The next thing that happened is I got the job at the most premier uh, club in in Chicago called the Park West, and he played there. He played a show with him and Steve Goodman. What Steve did, Goodman wrote the so, song City of New Orleans, right? Yeah. And I never knew. I, it's the same with the blues guys. Uh, you know, I worked at Buddy Guy's Club for a long time. I didn't know they were famous. I worked with the Art Ensemble of Chicago. I didn't know they even made records until I came to Japan and went into the bootleg thing and saw 80 records here. Huh. And I came back right to their place, man. And I said, oh, my God, I just came back from Japan. and." Bamadou Don Moyer is his name. He looked at me, he goes, oh, no, this is where it starts. Can't you be the other guy? Yeah. So, so I didn't know. I was naive. I didn't know James Cotton was a famous harmonica player, so I let him sleep on my couch. I used to hang out with Junior Wells because he used to get so jacked up that I had to watch him. I was afraid somebody would shoot him or knife him or something. Jeez. Right? And we became really good friends. And Buddy Guy gave me the keys to the club and told me if I was ever needed a place to stay or food, here's the keys to the refrigerator because it was locked and there's always a a pot of chili to put on for all the musicians. And Buddy would always feed the homeless behind the club. So I I followed those guys. 
right? it's when you mention the word John Prine, some everything becomes a John Prine song. The this whole past two minutes is just it sounds like you're <laughs> you're channeling a John Prine songbook lyric. Well, this sheet. is that's him. He's not channeling anything. He's just he's just taking a picture of what's around him. Yeah, and puts the words to it. Um, I'm a I've be, in the past few years I've become a huge fan of microphones. Um, and, uh, I got some good ones. You, you worked with sure. Yes, I did. And I'm, I'm, what did you do I with sure? And what can you say about sure? Beta 52 bass drum mic. That's one of mine. Deals. Really? And I got them to make new overheads instead of the SM 81s. I have a, yeah. I have the beta. Yeah. The, from my, I'm a drummer as well. I got a couple of bass drum mics. Yeah. Um, so, so Mrs. Sure, Mrs. Sure. When I, I had my first, uh, studio with the guy named Jay O'Rourke. Uh, called Jay's Garage. She sent over a box of microphones with a note that said, good luck. And Jack Cotney and and Mark Bruner, the guys from Sure, came over to the studio and gave us some 57s and 58s. And that was it. When I was on tour with Living Color, Sure wanted to sign an endorsement deal, but I was using a Bayer M88 in the kick drum. And I was using AKG 414s for the overheads. Those are and good mics, yeah. yeah you got to come up with a good bass drum mic and good overheads, expensive ones. And I think that kind of led to where they're at now. Unfortunately, they're, they're corporate, not so family as that it used to be. But yeah. And microphones? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, 67 Neumann, classic sounds. Uh, I worked with a guy, Paul Palmer. And Paul Palmer, uh, his first hit was called Baby Come Back by the band player. He, yeah, yeah. To, he invented uh, the band No Doubt. Oh, and great Bush, band. And then Bush, and that's how I were, was around those guys. So I would record his B-bands. But the most important thing that Paul Palmer taught me was, go to a studio that makes hits, and you will have hits. Ah. So the studio I worked at was the studio that Guns N' Roses recorded at, and Captain and Tennille. Hit records, right? Yeah, absolutely. And here's some here's some trivia for you. The Guns N' Roses studio was built by a famous actor, Mel Gibson. <laughs> really? Yep. He was a carpenter. <laughs> and how? If he was a carpenter and I was, was a lady. lady. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Would you have wow. my baby? Yeah, he did some repairs. But That's well, fantastic. Lee, yeah, Lee. So that's kind of weird stuff, but Lee and Guns N' Roses uh, a record is so good because they, they were all homeless. So the record company would pay for the studio and pay for catering and food at the studio. So they lived at the studio until they made that record be genius. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. So uh, we're, we're out of time, aren't we? Yeah, we're Matt, getting out of time one, here. One last Last thing, I don't know if you want you want to do this. Is there any way people can write to you or ask you a question, or do you want people to do that? Um, give you give out your email or something like that. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah. You can use uh, Lee at colorred.co. Okay. Yep. And what's easy your... to find on the internet? Uh, final word over to you, Lee. Um, I'll put all your information in the show notes, by the way. Um, yeah. Uh, what, what's your final recommendation to Japanese musicians in, in Japan looking to 
to get started, not started, but you know, dealing with all what's going on in the, in the current sphere of, of the music industry, you know, what's, what can you say? Um, play music for yourself, not for other people. If you're playing it for yourself, then you'll be happy and bring your happiness to the other people, which is the crowd. Your friends want to hear you play. Uh, if you're there to make money, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> mm. Right. But mm. through having that, uh, that kind of drive because uh, when the slam and Watusis finally got signed, we were playing in a club that had one PA speaker, no microphones on any of the instruments. And my friend bought the, brought the guy from Epic records in to see us. Cause he was just wanted to have some drinks with him. And that's how we got our record deal. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. And, and me and the bass player had just had a fight about not putting on our stage clothes. <laughs> Right. So I used to wear these shorts, skater shorts and stuff. I'm sorry, who is the uh who's uh in Star Wars lead actor? Hans R2 D2. No, no. C3PO. Yoda. No, 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 no. George Lucas. Steven Spielberg. E.T. No, come on, come on. Oh, you mean um Han Solo, the guy who plays Han Solo. Yeah, who's that? Um, Jack Nicholson. I don't remember his name. No, I can't remember his name. Aliens. Um, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a uh, Han Solo. What's <laughs> his name? I can't, uh, hold on. I can't remember. Wait See, I just blanked on it because I just said Mel Gibson built the studio. It's not Mel Gibson. It's him. Oh. Harrison Ford. Harrison, my oh, wife, of just, course, just, the wife comes in the back door there. She yep. just opens up and says, Harrison Ford, Harrison closes yeah, the Ford. door. <laughs> That's a, and, and when I make my productions, jo, Jolie, Jolie, my wife, has, has a special gift. She, she's, she's, the, she's the vocal coach. And so we've made 30 records together. And I just want to say one other thing. It, meeting the guys in Queen was an astounding moment because they were the nicest and most humble guys. They were accepting their uh, star on the uh, Walk of Fame in Hollywood. And my wife is a huge Queen fan. So my next door neighbor came over and said, Lee, do you know what a writer is? I go, what, do you have a band or something? Yeah, my wife has a fan club and she needs to, the guy says, fill the writer. And he handed me the paperwork and I looked down and there was Queen's logo. Wow. My, my heart jumped into my throat. Right. And I said to him, no problem. I rented the truck. I picked up the equipment. I got a set of drums for Roger Taylor. So we did a week of rehearsal and they were like, so thankful. And they're like, Lee, Lee, this is really great. I said, yeah, well, it's going to come with a little baggage. And, and they said, what? I go, my wife is probably the biggest queen fan. And she's seen you guys 30 times. They said, oh, okay. Let me know when she's going to come to the show. We'll be backstage. Okay. So Jolie calls me on the cell phone and says, I'm here. I said, cool. There's nobody backstage. Come on back and we'll have a beer for you here. And you can grab a beer and then do that. So Roger Taylor and Brian May both stood on the sides of the dressing room door. And when she walked in and ran up to me, those two guys grabbed her and sandwiched her. Then they apologized to her for not going on tour after Freddie died and letting her grieve properly. And to please not have any anxiety for I was their friend. So she was their friend. And Brian May said, here's my card. 
This is my phone number at my house. When you come to England, come have tea. This is my daughter. This is my son. This is my manager. It was one of the most elegant moves I've ever seen in the music industry. Awesome. Yep. Wow. Yep. All and right. the other greatest bit of advice I got from Bo Diddley. He's asked me if I was a guitar player. And I said, yes, I was. He said, so kick him in the balls. Never use your hands because that's where you make your money. Oh. Okay. All right. Leap uh, from Color Red Radio. Fantastic interview. Fantastic. All right. You've been listening to the Japan What Podcast, bringing you zero insight from the back end of Tokyo. I'm your co-host, Matt Bigelow. And I'm Mike Rogers. Thanks to today's guest, Lee Popa. (laughs) (laughs) 